So Ananias, why did Satan uh, fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then we look at the last part of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so it's rather interesting, I think, how the New Testament authors sort of, um, careless isn't the right word, but maybe freely is what I'm looking for, will move between God, Lord Christ, and spirit. And you'll open, you're lying to the spirit, you're lying to God. These kind of word interchanges, I think, speak towards the truly divine nature of the Holy Spirit. All right, Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Man, this is a three-parter. But it's good. All right, Jeremiah 31 and 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So small caps, capital L, lowercase caps for all the rest. So Yahweh says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Hebrews 10:15 tells us the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So this he seems to attach to and modify the Holy Spirit, who is put in the speaking place of Yahweh from the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 3 and verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Um, and on it goes. So this is the Holy Spirit saying this. So again, we get these sort of Yahweh statements of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but we see the Holy Spirit saying. We see this, this personhood come out um, um, of the Holy Spirit. So not only is it a reflection of the divine, but it's certainly a reflection of the Holy Spirit's personhood. <clears throat> All right. Acts 13.2 very simple text, but very fun text. So this is the church at Antioch after it explodes in uh, fruit. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit says, I have called them to a work. Set them apart for me. So again, we see this personhood. We see this authority in the, in the Holy Spirit. Um, obviously, the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus. Um, Maybe we can make a connection there. <coughs> um, the, the idea of the Spirit as indwelling God is an interesting um, concept. That doesn't necessarily mean equality, but I think it maybe certain, certainly kind of implies a, um, a deeper connection that's maybe approaching this idea of divinity. So if the Spirit, so Romans 8 and verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Do you not know that you are God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19, um, the same text, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, whom you have from God. So the idea is that we see that this is God's spirit in the same way that sort of I am in some ways equal with my spirit. It would seem that God, his father, is in some ways equal with his spirit, which we call the Holy Spirit. So in just a couple of texts, I think you see both personhood and you see divinity. And those are the two 
features that we want to keep in our minds as we're elaborating on the Holy Spirit. Because I hope you catch how radical that last text is. So if I were to ask you, let's imagine ourselves as, as good Hebrews, um, you know, no, we're, we're good Israelites on the, you know, the height of Solomon's reign, and I ask you, hey, where do I find God? What would you say to me? Where do I get God? In the temple, right? God's presence is in the temple. And maybe in a prophet here or there. Maybe the king at times. But if you want God, get to the temple. Catch what it says here in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So where is God's presence for the New Testament believer? What would you say? Yeah, you are God's presence. So it's not just a pithy phrase, be the hands and feet of Jesus, or be God's presence on your street. I would say it's way more literal than that. I think you literally are the presence of God because you're literally indwelt by a person who is truly divine. And I hope you catch how radical that is. There's nothing quite like it in any of the systems I've ever wandered through and read about and studied. That you are literally a moving tabernacle, a wandering around temple of God as you take that presence to those uh, who need to hear the good news of Christ. A really extreme um, picture of who we are. Is that unique to Christianity? Indwellings aren't unique, but the ultimate indwelling an individual as the house where I live, I think is incredibly unique. Yeah. Well, Traditional Buddhism is atheistic. Now, all the versions we have now are just a smorgasbord. What you find in contemporary U.S. society is imagine a buffet with all the religious philosophical concepts on it, and you wander down and you put the different pieces you like. Oh, I like Buddha's meditation. I, don't li- I like detaching from the world because that eliminates suffering. Ah, you know, Hinduism, I can hedge my bets because of the pantheon of gods. So you mix it all together. The New Age has a good concept of the energy force and you just mix it all together and that's your faith. So you'll find monotheistic strands of Buddhism now interestingly enough but traditionally not but you get indwellings, you get incarnations but do you get something where the supreme being of the universe manifested in a particular person takes residence in the creature for the sake of their righteous living and moving forward to the kingdom I've never seen it you get all the kind of weird mythological stuff of, you know, inhabiting people to wreak havoc on humanity and this sort of nonsense. Um, but, but nothing quite like, like this. Usually, in most systems, the supreme being is so transcendent, we don't even have concepts that can speak about him. Whereas Christianity says, God is so imminent. So we don't deny God's holiness. But God is also so imminent with us that you're actually indwelt by the literal third person. Truly divine. It's rather stunning. Yeah, any other questions? Just sort of before we move out of the being side to the work side. So precise language. Um, my curse is an analytic philosopher, so I can't help myself. So it's good to use he's personhood kind of uh, pronouns 
as it comes to the uh, Holy Spirit, sort of one being or entity and three persons. Uh, that kind of language is significant, particularly as the Christians trying to um, articulate this view to traditionally monotheistic, because we'd be accused of not being monotheistic, but we would say, no, we're monotheistic, one being. Um, you know, they accuse us of being tritheists, so having the proper language is helpful as you make disciples of some of these other traditions. All right, we're all comfortable with that, we're all happy. You haven't kicked me out yet. So let's move to the works of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> and I'll share with you the reason I steal this class <coughs> when Roger asked me each time, this is one I say I particularly want, is because it has been incredibly impactful to me as a believer. So coming out of theological school, lots of facts, lots of data, lots of theological doctrines, and um, you know, sort of as a young, wide-eyed intern trying to transition from academia to the church, Roger carelessly allowed me to teach a Sunday school class on the other end of the building. And we were walking through a series of doctrines. And I would teach these things, and we would lay it all out, and it would all fit together perfectly. And then the class wouldn't apply it well. And then they would ask me, me questions that are just like, we covered that question. Why are you asking me this? Why, why can't you just do it? It's clear what we believe. Why can't you just do it? And then as I looked at my own life, I began to critique, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not really doing fully what I need to be, what I need to be doing. And then I finally get to this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I do what I did with you, because that's sort of my bent, is to look at kind of attributes and what we call philosophical theology. But the pastoral side says, well, you need to look at the work, too, not just the personhood of the Holy Spirit for apologetic purposes, but what's sort of the, the meaning of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? So as I track through the New Testament, and I mean, the whole Bible as a whole, but in particularly the New Testament, obviously, and you look at the works of the Holy Spirit um, for the believer, I became convinced, and still convinced to this day, that I don't believe you can be the fullest Christian you can be unless you walk with the Holy Spirit. All of the stuff we say we want, the life we want to live, all of it is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit, and this is why Jesus could make that crazy statement, it's better for me to leave so you get the Holy Spirit because you're going to have a spiritual power to live in a way that you didn't think was possible. So I came to the realization that what I was actually doing each Sunday morning was just sort of heaping up bondage and burdens on people. Because what I was doing is giving them knowledge and exhortation without the actual power to live it. Because that power comes with walking with the Spirit. One of the attributes you have is holy. Holy. Uh, we are Well, I'm using holy in a very technical sense there as totally distinct and other and set apart. So not in that way, no. In terms of the way the New Testament often uses holy for the believer as set apart from society based on the fruits of your life, yeah, I think we can. And I think part of the reason I fall short of that ideal is precisely because I don't stay in lockstep with the Holy Spirit as I should. So this is, this is my zeal and why I still this class and why you're burdened with me this evening. 
But we'll start in Genesis 1 and verse 2. We all know this text. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So I think from the very beginning, um, for the New Testament believer that has a fleshed-out concept of the Trinity, we see the Holy Spirit at work in creation. We see the Spirit active, just as each person of the Trinity was active um, from the very beginnings of creation. Second Peter 1 and verse... 20. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. And I'll jot these attributes up, but I'll send this to you later, so don't feel like you have to write it all down. Creation. Inspiration. All right, inspiration in the technical sense of that word, meaning, yeah, Aaron? Uh, sorry, this is a little bit off-topic, but... Um, I love Yeah, so what was the purpose of the Holy Spirit hovering above the waters? So in a sense, I don't know, because the text doesn't elaborate on it. So I don't want to go too far. So let me, I'm in the realm of speculation here, uh, which I like the realm of speculation, but I want to be honest about it, because there's no text that really gives us, um, gives us a reason. But we do know what the waters represent biblically. Waters are always a statement of chaos. So what that's saying is, yes, literal waters, but I also think that everything was in total chaos, like there was just stuff there that God spoke into existence. I think this is what the text is leading us towards. So as the Spirit is hovering over the waters, the Spirit is bringing order to this chaos and bringing structure. So what God's about to do, day one through seven, as it were. Yeah, that would be a gap theorist model. It was prominent in conservative evangelicals, particularly Southern Baptists, in the early 1900s up until probably at least the 50s. Um, I myself don't ascribe to a gap theory model because I don't think the text uh, really allows it. But, um, you know, some people like it. You see it a lot in charismatic movements in particular. Does anybody know what I mean by gap theory? Okay. So let's go back to Genesis. Look at Aaron sidetracking us. And I don't have to take an excursus on creation. I think that's Purdom next week is talking about creation. Can't help myself, though. Uh, so verse 2 of Genesis 1, now the earth was formless and empty. So we do understand that the Hebrew language, much like the English language, I mean, there's a finite set of words. So many words can carry multiple meanings. So we call it semantic range. What's the range of meanings for any given word? Which is why interpretation can be difficult and why there's always a little bit of interpretation and translation. Because you've got to choose which one of this range of words we're going to put in the text, and that's going to influence how I interpret that theologically and all the rest. But thank God we have faithful men and women who dedicate their lives and do a great job at it to make people like me, um, our life a lot easier. So that word was, now the earth was formless and void. Part of the semantic range of that word is became. So the gap theorist is going to say, the way we ought to read that text is the earth became formless and empty. So theologically, God creates perfect. God didn't create chaos. God creates perfection. So we know if God spoke heavens and earth, it was perfect. And then verse 2 says it became void. It became chaos. So how so? Well, it's through the rebellion of Satan and one-third of the heavenly host. 
against the uh, one true righteous God. So that brought chaos to the world. God then restores order, creates Adam and Eve as stewards of the temple of the universe for God's presence here. And then off we go with the Bible. So that would be a kind of flyover of gap theory. So it solves some problems, like certain texts in Genesis, but I just don't think the actual Hebrew of Genesis can get us there because of a lot of the modifiers around there. So in other words, I rely on the people a lot smarter than me who know Hebrew better, and they say, ah, that's a stretch. So is there a transition from verse 1 to 2 in the, the word used for create, so create from nothing to create from something? Yeah, so create, traditionally, any time God is the subject, is almost always the term bara. And generally, that's given the theological input, then, of nothing. Um, I'd have to look. So it's bara in verse 1. Yeah, because I don't think the word create, I'm trying to see if the word create is ever used again there. Yeah, but it's, it's a totally different, um, totally different phrase. So you just don't get the word create, so you don't get the same term there. So the gap theorist would say, look, that's God bringing form. Let there be light then out of the chaos. Um, a traditionalist seven-day interpretive context is going to say, look, this is just you know, what God does on day one. Uh, an old earth creationist view is going to say, look, this is like some polemic or hymn or something, um, training the Hebrew people on how to properly think about Yahweh over against all the pagan deities, Egyptian deities and so forth. And then, I don't know, I wish I did. <laughs> but generally you will, I think it's a great point you make, that you see a lot of creation in the Old Testament with like craft workers, jewel workers with the tabernacle, with the ark and all sorts of things. And the law is generally reserved for the divine. So it's a rather interesting feature of the, uh, of the text. Yeah. Yeah, because that's been a traditional, like most, aye, aye, aye. you guys know how to, how to talk about what I enjoy. Most, most systems say that the universe is eternal itself. So like the world or the universe has always existed. And then what happens is that the great being, whatever being that is, brings structure to it. So this would be everything from Platonic and Aristotelian metaphysics all the way through um, you know, any contemporary view of the world, um, non-Abrahamic religious view of the world. So what the Christian says, and I guess the Muslim and the Jew as well, is that that's all we had. And then at some moment later, I use moment loosely since nothing existed yet, the universe begins to exist. So it comes into being in some unique way. What Augustine, and historically we've called creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. It comes out of nothing. God just speaks it into being. What's doubly interesting is that the best of contemporary physical cosmology says the universe came into existence, which is also rather interesting. Uh, sort of Big Bang cosmology is kind of the king of the playground right now. And, uh, and it would say the universe began to exist at some moment. So it's pretty interesting. The more humanity seems to learn about the world, the more the Bible <laughs> seems to have already been there and has already stated it in some unique and wonderful way. Yeah. So what was the Spirit doing? 
I would say the spirit is um, in some ways structuring and building the world. But we also know the word made flesh. So Christ, and not as Jesus yet, because that doesn't happen until the incarnation, but uh, was also in creation. So I don't know. But the spirit was there and the spirit was active and it seems like it has to do something with order. That's the best I can do. Yeah, enjoy the view. What can you do? I wish God told us more, but I'd probably screw it up worse than I already do. <laughs> I don't think God can make it any easier, and I still blow it. <laughs> All right, good question. Good question here. That's why we keep airing around. Always driving us. Second <laughs> Peter 1 and verse 20. Above all, know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration, in the sense that I think we ought to use it biblically, is that a particular text, and that would also include verbal language, is what's inspired. So inspiration is really not a great term uh, because we think of inspiration as a sunset that provokes me to, I don't know, write some poem or some such. But inspiration in the theological technical sense means that the Holy Spirit secures a particular text to reveal God and then superintends its transmission throughout history. So the individuals are inspired, the text is inspired. That makes sense, all right? So the Holy Spirit not only had a role in creation, whatever it might have been, but the Holy Spirit produces the Bible in a sense, for us through the work of faithful people. All right, the conception of Jesus, we all know. So Luke 1.30, Mary conceives, um, conceives through the Holy Spirit. So verse 35, the angel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, divine illumination so we'll say Jesus' conception. Now, of course, these don't really apply to us, right? So I'm, I'm kind of, our first four that I'm talking about really aren't things that we do. They're just gifts in a way that we receive. Illumination, I guess, would be the first one that has to do with us. So illumination is that when we read the Bible, not only did the Holy Spirit produce the very text, that we read, but the Holy Spirit illuminates the believer's mind to understand and interpret the text. So divine illumination. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, but as it is written, I don't know if I want that text, let's go to verse 10. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the idea then is that through the Spirit we receive this word and will of God and then same chapter, well, yeah, that's good enough. So let's say 10 through 13, First, First Corinth, or, yeah, First Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 14. All right, so divine illumination. So prayer, before we read the Bible, is a good practice to get into because that's part of what I think gets us in tune and gets us set right with the Holy Spirit to be able then to deal with the text rightly. Um, So I think of, in some ways, before we go through the rest of these that I have listed out, um, I think of, and this won't be good for anyone in the digital age, 
but previously you had dials on radios and you had a little needle that went up and down a bunch of numbers and you tried to find a station that was playing what you wanted. And I think the Holy Spirit is like that in some ways, where the Holy Spirit is some mega, megawatt FM station that's just pumping truth all the time. And we're radios trying to get our conscience or our soul spirit in some tune with what the Holy Spirit is saying. So my assumption is the Holy Spirit is active. My other assumption is that if there's a problem, I'm the one that's missing it. So part of it is how are we in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, and that's kind of what the rest of this, what the rest of this is about. But maybe a first one is gives us illumination as we study the text, so that we think rightly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we know every nuance, secondary, tertiary doctrine, but it means we think rightly about the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, regeneration, regeneration of the believer. Oh, what a miracle. All right, John 3, classic text, Nicodemus. John 3, beginning in verse 5. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. So this idea that our regenerative state, as we move from this spirit in active disobedience against God leaning fully into our fallen natures to now a regenerated spirit who can respond to the conviction of the spirit and the spirit's power overcome temptation um, that's a work of the spirit himself as he regenerates the believer and puts us in this right state with God because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice so regeneration is a work of the spirit all right, baptism into the body. So part of what I would say the syncing up of us with the family of God, with the church, <coughs> um, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So baptism into the body. So 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. And we're going to see oftentimes, especially when Paul writes about it, is that the Holy Spirit is the bringer of unity. If you see a church that has no unity, it's a church out of step with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Lord of confusion and disunity, but the Lord of order and unity within the body of Christ. So Bruce Ware, one of my favorite theologians, giving a a conference on what the church is, uh, paints this image that has stuck with me, and I share it with you now, because I don't get to teach you ecclesiology, but I think I can smuggle it into the spirit section too, because I think the spirit is why this fact is true. So he says, imagine that you and some other person are born on the same day in the same year, in the same town, and your parents live as neighbors. So you grow up as neighbors, go to the same schools, you like all the same stuff, you graduate at the same time, you, uh, you go off to the same school, you end up in the same field in a career. If you get married, you get married to twins of whatever you know, the other gender is. Um, your lives look identical. And then Bruce Ware says, now imagine somebody on the furthest end of the earth that you can ever imagine who doesn't speak your language, 
Egypt has no clue you exist or anything about your way of life. All right? He says, your neighbor's not a believer. This person on the other end of the world is a believer. You have more in common with that person than the person whose life looks identical to yours. And I think the reason Dr. Ware can claim such a radical statement like that is because we're indwelt by the Spirit. We have a unity, me and this other language-speaking, other person who I'll never meet, who I'll never know, that is totally different from me in every way, except that they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That I have a bond and a connection and similarity with that person that far outpaces all the superficial things in life that match those in my own culture. And that's this radical bringing together of the body of Christ where Paul can say, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, so Jew or non-Jew, that's how you ought to hear that, slave or free, male or female, we're all one in the spirit. It's a pretty radical teaching for his time and I would argue for our time as we hear in the news a lot about disunity and you know, with no real answers other than that they ought to compromise. No, they ought to compromise. I would say maybe we all need to meet the Holy Spirit and we might, we might have some authentic unity. But consider that if a church, if the body of Christ is not in step with the Holy Spirit so that they're not modeling unity, what hope, what hope does the world have for it? So it behooves us to get in step with the Spirit. Did you have a question, Doc? Okay. All right, indwelling, I call this identity, Romans 8 and verse 9, identity, identity, Romans 8 verse 9, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So I could add glorification there too, which we would say is our resurrection. So we'll get double out of that verse. Right? But our identity. So I got in a conversation, it was this morning, which seems like a week ago, and then a few hours before I came in here, both of the conversations were about salvation and identity. And we, our tradition, um, has sort of some de facto, uh, some de facto, hope this doesn't come across as offensive, but some de facto Roman Catholic tendencies in terms of particular formulas or particular rituals that mark one as saved. So we ask, hey, what day were you saved? Well, what am I asking you? In a sense, I'm asking you, what day did you make this statement that I accept Jesus in my heart or some such? But where biblically does it tell me that that's the day I'm regenerate? Really? Right? So in some sense, this sounds bad as a Southern Baptist for life, but in some sense, I don't care. <laughs> what I care about is, do you know now? Do you understand your identity is in Christ now, precisely because you're in step and in tune with this work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that secures our identity. And we understand ourselves as in Christ precisely because of the work of the Holy Spirit does in us. So the Holy Spirit... Like echo that. Nice. When I was a new Christian, yeah. I counted it yeah. And as I became a little bit more biblically literate and, and more mature yeah. and examined my past, I realized yeah. There was something going on. Long, 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 long. That's right. 
That's right. So now when I'm asked that question, I always say, well, I'm not really sure. Yeah. And so I steal from John Piper, because he likes to say, I don't know. <laughs> like if you ask me to pin down a day, time, month, year, I have no clue. But I can tell you now, I know, I know this, Romans 8, 9, and I know this, the assurance of salvation. Why? Precisely because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's great. Yeah. And I, I second that for my own life. <laughs> it's the same way. So what's glorification? So, glorif- so you've already done soteriology too, right? We've, you had that? Okay, I want to make sure I'm not jumping on anybody's own to come. But we sort of say salvation is a broader concept in the scriptures and generally is broken down as justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so this would be that moment at which the Holy Spirit regenerates, whether or not our formula is involved. This would be our progression towards Christ-likeness as we're discipled and matured throughout our lives. And this would be the resurrected body given in the new heavens and new earth. So I think we see in this text of identity that if we trust in the spirit who raised Christ, or the spirit of him who raised Christ is actually what the text says, then we will be raised by the same power of that spirit. So we have this kind of glorification, future hope built in um, for the believer as a work of the Holy Spirit to raise the dead to new life. What's the difference, or what does resurrection mean theologically? Well, what it means is that you're raised into a non-fallen state material body that will never perish and will not sin. So there's a drastic difference between revivification, so like Lazarus coming back from the dead, or Jairus' daughter, and resurrection. Resurrection is a very theologically rich term that we don't want to apply to simple revivifications. I'm surprised that sanctification is not It will be. We're getting there. <laughs> I don't know why I put these in the order I put them in, honestly, because I jump out of the text and I go right back to the same text, but this is what my list says, so I'm just following it. But we're getting there. Yeah, spot on. Matter of fact, why not? Let's just do it now. So powerful spiritual living is what I call it, but yes, you could just say sanctification. I get accused of using too many technical words. But I like you guys, you don't seem to care. Right? Powerful spiritual living or our sanctification. This moving towards Christ likeness. So I go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18, and verse 25. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. He lists all the vices, then he lists the fruits of the Spirit. And then he says, uh, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this idea of life in the Spirit is what gives us power to deny the desires of the flesh, which are precisely this sanctified progression of us towards Christ-likeness. So the promise for the believer is one day we'll get to be like Jesus. Certainly we try it now, but one day we'll get to be even more like Jesus, maybe we can say. Fruit, stay on the same theme because I'm in the same text. So Galatians 5 and verse 22, and I think this one's so significant, and I probably overuse this text. Um, 
but I don't care. It's good. Verse five, chapter five and verse twenty-two of Galatians. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. So, um, sometimes people will ask me, how do I know what to do? And oftentimes there's something very specific in their life that there's no way I could possibly know. So my normal response to them is always twofold. Like, I don't know what job you should have, what city you should live in, who you should date. I haven't a clue uh, most of the time. Uh, a couple of times I get it right. <laughs> uh, but, but I don't know these very specific things. But if the Holy Spirit is truly divine, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, the Holy Spirit knows these things. So I know that. So my advice is, if you want to know the very particular things in your life, do the very general things that get you in step with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is why we see, seek first the kingdom of God. So my advice is, I know this. Christ commanded us to be in the word. Christ commanded us to be in community, loving one another. Christ commanded us to abide in his word, to be obedient to his commands. I know that, and I know if you do those things, you're going to be in step with the Holy Spirit, and you'll see all the other things. Secondly, I ask them, how do you know the difference between God's work and Satan's work? I think it's something we don't talk about enough. Because Satan is Satan precisely because Satan's such a good counterfeiter. What makes Satan powerful is that Satan will do a work right up to the very end that looks like God, and then pervert it at the very end. We think about Jesus' temptation in the desert. And Satan is just citing scripture after scripture, but then he perverts the application of it uh, for Messiah. So how do we gauge? How do I know? <laughs> when things are lining up in my life, coincidentally, how do I know that that's not Satan leading me astray from God rather than God leading me into his rest and his providence? I would say one way is take a look at your life. <laughs> and I like to use the fruits of the Spirit as a kind of litmus. So not to the point of legalistic, if you fail all of these, then you're a heathen. But just to say, look, the scriptures say that the Spirit bears nine some odd fruits. If none of these are present in some kind of natural way in my life, I would doubt very seriously whether or not I can hear the voice and discern God's call in my life, if that makes sense to you. So hear what I'm not saying. Hey, if you're just a good boy or girl, then you can trust that it's always God. What I'm saying is that if these fruits are in some ways flowing out of your life in a regular and ordinary sort of way, then I think you have good confidence to think that you can discern the Spirit's voice. And you have good confidence to trust that you ought to do what you want to do. And I think walking with the Spirit is part of the freedom of the gospel of Christ. One of the saddest things, and I lived it for a lot of years, is that the gospel is a freeing gospel. Most Christians I see look like they're very much in bondage. I blame Hollywood. I blame poor teaching. But I see Christians who are so overwhelmed with the options that they do nothing. They're just frozen. They're stuck. They're trapped in some way because they don't want to mess up God's plan. <laughs> now, I would say if God is divine, in the way we said, you're not going to mess up God's plan. I don't think you have that power. <laughs> uh, so, A, don't worry about it. But I think the freedom of the gospel, so I think in terms of Psalm 37 and verse 4, where the psalmist says, if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the things of your heart. 
that's a pretty um, risky promise on God's part. As I look over my life, there's been some very ungodly things that my heart has wanted at times. And I think that's why that qualifies there. If you delight in the Lord, if you delight in the Lord, so I would say as we're doing these activities that help us get in tune with the Spirit, our affections are changed in such a way that they align with God's affections. And the Christian, and I say this under that qualification, we do whatever we want. The Christian can do whatever they want. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are edifying. How do we know the difference? Through the discernment of the Spirit. So again, it's this walk with the Holy Spirit that I think liberates the Christian to sort of have a joy in their life, where it's not a misery, but it's a joy to obey the Lord. I love it. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than that. Unfortunately, I don't know that that's always how we approach it. All right, here's a big one that I talk about a lot with a lot of people. Romans 8 in verse 14, for all those led, Romans 8 and verse 14, for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children and of children, heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So I think this is what I call assurance of salvation. So how do you know you're saved? It's because the Holy Spirit testifies to your salvation. You're secured in the Holy Spirit. It's not based on whether you accomplish some set of things. Right? It's based on the extent to which you've submitted to the Lordship of Christ to allow this Holy Spirit to do a work in you. In some ways, paradoxical. I find that when I disciple men, we seem to have the most trouble with this. Um, we, and I say we because I'm in this camp, um, sort of devolve at times into a transactional faith. How can God love me unless I have some list of stuff I've done for God? God can't love me unless I've done something worthy of God's love. And the Christian gospel says, you can't. <laughs> and yet I love you anyway. This is Paul. How do we know God loves us. While we were still sinners, Christ died. It's precisely because Christ died for you while you were a mess that testifies to God's love. And likewise, it's a testimony of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life that gives us this assurance of salvation. So for people that struggle with identity in Christ and who am I, do I matter? My advice to them is very much to my advice of people who don't know. It's very much my advice to people who have disunity is get to know the Holy Spirit in some deeper and intimate way. We'll talk about that in a minute. But a lot of people are very worried about losing their salvation. Um, Thomas Aquinas called it the instigation of the Holy Spirit. Um, John Calvin loosely called it the sensus divinitatis. But there's this, this divine call on our lives through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. If you want a really fun... <laughs> a really fun philosophical term because I've been so impressed with you tonight. It's what some philosophers call the, an intrinsic defeater-defeater. That's what the Holy Spirit is. An intrinsic defeater-defeater. Oh, hope you never have to hear those words again. But I love the concept, so I'm telling it to you anyway, if I could spell. So what's a defeater? A defeater is I have some belief, like there's a pink elephant in the room. 
Well, the defeater is, well, look around. You don't see one. And your eyes are functioning and the lights are right and there's no trick uh, cameras or whatever. So that's a defeater. You defeat my belief. So what's a defeater or defeater? Well, that's, well, no, wait a minute. Um, when I move this curtain, there is a pink elephant there. So I've defeated your defeater. <laughs> so this is philosopher talk. What's intrinsic mean? That means that is core and essential. It's kind of the, the deepest part of and is valuable in its own sake. So one of my favorite philosophers, Alvin Plantinga, says, look, no matter what argument you ultimately bring against Christianity, and no matter what experience I have in my life that makes me doubt God's existence, the Holy Spirit is an intrinsic defeater-defeater. It's going to overcome any doubts, ultimately. Maybe not in a season. Maybe there are seasons of valleys. But over time, the Holy Spirit will defeat anything that brings doubt into my mind about the truth of Christ and his love for me. And I think it's a, a pretty incredible sort of thing. So there you go, another one. But that's not in scripture. That's just uh, Alvin Blanagan, who's sometimes quoted in scripture. All right, John 16 and verse 8. John 16 and verse 8. Conviction of sin. Ooh. This is a dirty one. All the others are so happy. And this one's kind of disturbing. John 16 and verse 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So that voice... That, that voice that speaks against in our conscience that is saying, don't do that, or this is wrong, or as I'm, as I'm critiquing my brother or sister in the faith, bam, I get hit with a critique in my own mind. Ah, I'm worse <laughs> than they could ever be. Like, recognize your own flaws. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not for the sake of making us feel bad, although there is a grief that leads to salvation, Paul says, but for the sake of restoration. The Holy Spirit's work, as we've seen, is to move us into this Christ-like life. And we can't have that life if we are in unrepentant and unremittent sin. So the Holy Spirit brings conviction of the sin so that we'll confess it, that we'll repent it, and through the Holy Spirit's power, begin to overcome it. So the conviction of sin is a great grace in our life. It's not something to run from, but it's something to lean into. It's uncomfortable, and it does feel bad at first because you recognize your own wretchedness, but it ultimately results in restoration. Why? Because we have a God who loves us and who has promised us to conform us into the image of the Son. So all of this is to our benefit because it's going to help us live lives that are flourishing in the uh, walk with Christ. So conviction of sin. So if we're not walking with the Holy Spirit, presumably we're not going to be convicted of our sins. We're going to rationalize our sins. We're going to find excuses for our sins. It's the walk with the Holy Spirit that brings this conviction that ultimately will lead to restoration. Uh, we kind of hit this a little bit with illumination, but we'll hit it even harder now. Just a couple verses down, <clears throat> verse 13. I still have many things to tell you, Jesus says, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. 
everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and declares it to you. So we see that this Holy Spirit brings us into the right truth and the proper thinking about Christ. So I just say it shows us the, um, the truth about Jesus. Truth about Jesus. So to think rightly about Jesus is to be discerning the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And that's how we think properly about Christ. So what would Jesus do? He tells us. Get in step with the Spirit and you'll know what to, <laughs> you'll know what to do. Don't just wing it and try harder. Because you'll fail. All right, this is one of my favorites. Ooh. Ooh. Prayer. P. That's a P there. Prayer and intercession. <coughs> yeah. All right, prayer and intercession. So this is Romans 8 and verse 26. Romans 8 and verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, um, one is I think the Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray, right? helps us to, to learn how to pray. But then we get this crazy idea that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes that we oftentimes don't pray for what we ought to be praying for. And it says, look, the Holy Spirit has you covered. The Holy Spirit is praying for the very things you should be praying for and interceding for us in these uh, sort of dramatic ways. So it's a good comfort, and hopefully it's a comfort that just pray. Because even if you mess it up, the Holy Spirit's got it right. And it creates this attitude in us. Yeah. Who is your intercessor? Mary. That's right, Mary. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. The concept of intercession is, is very explicit in the Roman Catholic faith. The difference is um, Jesus can't deny Mary's request. So if we can talk Mary into asking Jesus on our behalf, Jesus will give it to us. The Holy Spirit says, you don't even know what to ask. I will cover it all for you. I got this. I got this. For those of you that are parents, it's like your little kid wants all this stuff. It's like, mm, I'm going to give you what's going to actually help you in life, help you succeed. You always, I'm just wondering if it's the same category. You always have to meet people and say, hey, pray for me, pray for me. Would that be technically intercessory prayer? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 we would intercede for them. Yeah. And I think that's appropriate. Paul says, carry one another's burdens in this way fulfill the law of Christ. I think part of that is praying for one another. Um, James and John both tell us to pray for the one in sin. You know, the, the, the prayer of the righteous availeth much, as the old KJV um, uses a kind of flowery language. Yeah, so we definitely ought to um, have intercessory prayer. And then even if we screw the intercessory prayer up, we have the Holy Spirit's intercession on our behalf. So it's kind of like um, sort of diversify your portfolio. Uh, the Holy Spirit's got it hedged and, and we're, we're good to go. That's right. So it takes a lot of pressure off, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping this whole thing takes the pressure off but increases the responsibility in some paradoxical way. Because this is available to us as believers. So the responsibility is high because all we've got to do is ask for it. 
and be faithful in the basics. And the Holy Spirit does all of this on our behalf. So in that sense, the pressure's off, but we have the responsibility to, to engage it in some meaningful way. All right. Anoints for ministry. Anoints for ministry. I'll do both. So Luke 18, then Acts 10. So Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery uh, of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this, of course, is Jesus claiming for himself the promises of Isaiah as he in a very explicit and in-your-face way says, I am the Messiah. All right, Acts 10 and verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. So the Holy Spirit anoints us for this work. And so this is kind of my general view of the church, is that a congregation is, is convicted by the Holy Spirit to some particular work. And my job is to help you do that sort of thing. Not to create work for you, not to dream up ministries for you, but the Holy Spirit ought to be convicting you about what you are called to do in your own disciple-making. And then we, as your staff, help you get there. So the Holy Spirit is the anointer of ministry. All right, unifying the church. Oh, such an important message. Um, Ephesians 4, 3 just says making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. But um, Ephesians 2 is where I want to sit for a second. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. For Christ, he is our peace, who made both one group, made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. <clears throat> he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. And so this is constant refrain of Paul that we're baptized in one spirit. We have access in one spirit. We're all in one spirit. So that the church ought to be the symbol of unity for the world. Now, we're in a state, and I don't know the answer. Hopefully, maybe one of you has it. But um, the church of God, so Christian church, is often accused of disunity precisely because of so many denominations and expressions of faith. So whereas we might see, hey, that's just freedom. Like, when it comes to sort of the core essentials, we're, we're in lockstep in terms of um, salvation in Christ and, and, and all the rest. Um, but, but I've seen a lot of accusations from people outside of our faith that says, man, you look at our system, it's hierarchical, it's locked down, we all believe the same thing. Now, technically, that's false, um, but it sort of has this perception that they believe the same thing. Whereas you look at the mess and messiness of Christianity, you know, post uh, Protestant Reformation, and you got the Anabaptist tradition, you got the, the Presbyterian tradition through John Knox by way of Calvin, and uh, you got the Lutherans, you got the Methodists, uh, well, you got the Nazarenes, who were the non backslidden Methodists, and then you have the Methodists who came out of the Anglicans, and the Anglicans who came out of the Catholics, and it's just a mess. And so they say, look at the disunity. I don't know how to overcome that, because I would say, wow, that's just the brilliance of God. 
that he gets a lot of unique and diverse people on the single mission of disciple making by letting them express their faith in a myriad of ways. But um, the, the world doesn't see unity in the church, and it's a, it's a sad thing. And I don't, I don't fully know the answer, but it's something to hopefully keep, keep you awake at night. <laughs> Final question there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would say in general, any church in the family of the charismatic tradition is going to put a greater emphasis on the spirit. And I think some of them do it in really healthy, mature, biblical ways, and I think some don't. Just like I would say folks in our tradition talk a lot about the authority of the word, and some live it and some don't. And so I think within every tradition, um, there's always going to be a little bit of an emphasis, which is why there was, you know, this split, for lack of a better term right now. Uh, but it, it just sort of depends on how it's used. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I think there's been abuses in the charismatic church, just like there's been abuses in, in our tradition. So it almost you really have to take it on a case-by-case basis, I think, personally. Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes it's hard to paint with a broad brush on some of these things. All right, perseverance until the second coming, Galatians 5 and verse 5. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. So a hallmark of the Christian faith is that we endure to the end. Right? So those that leave the faith are precisely the ones without faith. Why? Because they didn't endure until the very end. And so this kind of endurance, perseverance, overcoming, I think is all a work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Um, so not only do we get the assurance of salvation, but we get this perseverance in salvation until Jesus' return. All the work of the Spirit. All right, two more. And then you'll notice a glaring omission that I did intentionally to make a point. So the last two are comforter and helper. Comforter and helper. So Acts 9 and verse um, 31 um, you'll often hear the Holy Spirit refer to um, yeah, you'll often hear the Holy Spirit referred to as the as the Paraclete, and it comes from this um, this idea of uh, help helper. Um, so first, Acts nine and verse thirty one. Um, so the church throughout all Judea. Galilee and Samaria had peace and it was strengthened. Living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit there and the expansion of the church. And then lastly, John 14 and verse 26, but the counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So we see the Holy Spirit is this individual who encourages and comforts the church in the strength of what Christ has done and then also helps us through illumination and right thinking about Jesus to then live that out in power. So the Holy Spirit is considered this helper 
the helper to the believer to live, to live the righteous life. So where did I leave off in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church? Michelle Dyer is going to come hit you if you don't answer this. Yeah, so I left off this, the gifts intentionally, intentionally. Because often when our tradition talks about the Holy Spirit, we immediately talk about giftings. Do you have the gift of shepherd? Do you have the gift of pastor? Do you have the gift of helps? That's significant and that's important. But I want you to see the full breadth of the Christian life is a work of the Holy Spirit, not just what role you play in your local congregation. And I think our tradition, more than any others, has done a poor job of keeping balance between those realities. Not being a Baptist, the conservative evangelical tradition. Partially because we're afraid of the charismatics, I would say. <laughs> yeah, we fear them, so we just, ah, we don't talk about the Spirit. Just, you know, you got this gifting, so go do that job. But I want you to see that while that's significant, and we're right to do that, that the works of the Holy Spirit are diverse and myriad in the walk of the believer's life. If we want to have joy as Christians, if we want to live faithfully as Christians, if we want to think rightly as Christians, all of that is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the million dollar question then is how on earth do we walk well with the Holy Spirit? How do we get in sync and in tune with the Holy Spirit? So my answer is... um, not very exciting. <laughs> I think we just do the fundamentals. I think God made it as simple as possible that we are in our scriptures daily. The number one predictor in every study I've ever seen, if you want to be more like Jesus next year than you are today, the number one thing you can do is be in your Bible daily. That this is the primary catalyst for spiritual growth and study after study after study after study. Because I think it's through this text that the Holy Spirit brings this illumination that we can then walk out um, in this power and bear this fruit. So, be in your Bibles. Not because it's legalistic. Not because you're earning God's favor. But because the Holy Spirit wants to walk with you in a flourishing and joyous life. So we're in the scriptures because the scriptures help us to understand the Lord. Sometimes people ask me, what might God say? Or what is God saying? I don't know, but I have a lot of what God said. <laughs> Go read your Bible. Right? The literal words of God. If you don't know what to pray, read, pray scripture. Right? This is what God seems to care about because this is the text that we have. So number one is I would say it's very simple, but be in your Bible. What does that mean? Does that mean that you have two commentaries, you have your Greek dictionary? Maybe. There's a place for that. But I would say it's sort of the whole range of ways that the Christian has to engage with the text. Some of that might be praying the text. Some of that might be writing the text. Some of that might be studying exegetically one little sliver of text. Some of that might be reading copious amounts at one time of text. One good exercise, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but they make unmarked Bibles. So it's Bibles without any chapters or verses in it. So it's just like a regular book. And it's interesting how much faster and fuller you read when you don't have the burden of, um, of the numbers everywhere. And so that's not a bad practice. So be creative in how you engage the Bible. If you've been engaging the Bible in one way and you've found that it doesn't bring you fruit, try another way. There's good books like Donald Whitney's um, um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. There's plenty of websites of people that will give you creative ways 
to engage the scriptures. But if you're in your Bibles, you will, I believe, you will um, begin to discern the voice of the Spirit much more clearly. Now, all of this presumes, let me, let me put my qualifier here, all of this assumes that you have submitted to the Lordship of Christ in your life. Because there's a lot of atheistic New Testament scholars that know the Bible better than I'll ever know it in terms of the language. But they don't, they don't believe. There's no submission to the Lordship of Christ. So if this has happened, then I would say, if you're in your word, um, you're going you're to start to discern the Holy Spirit's voice better. I would say, and this is biased as the group guy here, but being a group, being in an ongoing biblical community, doesn't have to be a Sunday school class. Um, it doesn't have to be a theological lecture, but be in some community that's serious about the Bible, that is serious about encouraging and uplifting one another. The Holy Spirit often works through other believers in each other's lives as we come to secure our identity as we're in community and in faith. Um, and I also think just in terms of general discipleship, like John 13, 35, Jesus at Passover tells the disciples, by this they know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. He's not talking about the world and unbelievers. He's saying the way we love each other as a church is going to be a testimony to the world that we are Christ's disciples. So be in a community of faith. And then prayer, of course. Um, prayer is often called, and perhaps rightly so, the most underutilized weapon in the arsenal of the believer. Um, I, I believe it just when I look at my own life. Um, it's not all, all so littered with prayer. Um, praying can be difficult at times and it can be weird, but I think it's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get at it and the more comfortable it becomes. So if you're stuck, pray the scriptures. Um, one, one thing I learned later than I wish I had is that I artificially thought I had to do all these disciplines distinct from one another. So it's sort of like, okay, Bible time, let's put all that away, and now let's do our prayer time, let's put all that away, and now let's go do silence and solitude time, and put all that away. But I think these things sort of go together. Like as you're reading the scripture, a lot of times, in the Bible itself are prayers. Use that as your prayer for a while, if your prayer life feels stale. Pray, pray the scriptures themselves, because it's God's word to God's people. But we have to be a praying people, um, because it's part of what sets our attitudes right. It's part of what sets our mentality right. Um, James tells us very clearly in James 1 is that God is prepared to generously give to those who ask for wisdom. And that wisdom is to endure these trials of life and to live this kind of spirit-filled life. So, um, so ask God, because God wants to generously give to his children. Um, James says, worship, worship. This is, this is one that I fail at sometimes. But don't forsake the gathering together, Hebrews says. Now I think part of that might be the house church, but I think in some ways we do the house church in a big room over there. And so there's some power that comes, even for tone deaf kind of stale people like me, there's a kind of power that comes in the gathering together of many believers in a place, singing praise to God, hearing the word rightly preached and spoken. Um, there's a kind of spirit and a vitality that comes with that. And it's, uh, it's not available to everyone everywhere we recognize in the world, right? It's sort of, it's been an interesting thing to see in some ways 
the kind of regression of the North American, particularly the U.S. church, in terms of like, like 1.6 Sundays per month now is average in terms of attendance. And you got places in the world where like, you're going to jail if people catch you gathering. And they're desperate for it, and we can't get rid of it fast enough. It's a very bizarre, frustrating kind of thing. And I would suggest they're in a tighter walk with the Spirit than we are. So what I'm saying to you is that I think the disciplines of the spiritual life are what keep us in tune with the Spirit. That's what keeps our radios on the right dial so that we hear the voice of the Spirit that calls us to conviction, anoints us to ministry, gives us the power, bears fruit in our life, and all the rest. So we do disciplines not in some legalistic way where we're trying to earn God's favor or show our, um, show our greatness. But we do these spiritual disciplines because that's precisely what syncs us up with the Spirit, who is the one who brings about this in the believer's life. So that would be my encouragement to you tonight, is to see your disciplines as a grace in a very easy way um, to claim all of this for your life in a substantial and meaningful way. All right, I'm done. Questions, comments, critiques, rebukes? If you're through rebuke, I'm going to pause first. Uh, my charismatic church friend would uh, seek to um, hear direct voice from. Yeah, and if you need to go, you, you can go. We'll just do QA from now on. Yeah. Uh, through, through and, uh, Yeah, so what is this voice of God sort of thing? And you have into... Yeah, yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, people, some people talk about prayer language and, and all sorts of other things. Um, is it audible for some people? Maybe. Um, so in the end, I don't know. I don't want to judge... I don't want to judge someone's subjective experience. Um, but I will say the idea of the voice of God talking to me as a function of my having worshiped well doesn't seem to be a promise I recall in the scripture. So it's not something I would go in seeking. Rather, is I would trust that, man, the board's full and I can't help myself. Um, there's this guy named Labette, and he's not a believer, but he did this really interesting experiment where he wanted to see sort of how freedom in the individual works. So he had these people hooked up to this machine and it tells them like when to push a button. And what he found was, here's what seemed to happen. The person makes a decision here and then some milliseconds later, they become aware of the decision and then some way down here they act, you know, as time increases this way. So the decision seems to be made and then the individual becomes aware of it and then they can either go yay or nay and act on it or not. I think this is interesting for the believer because with the view of the dualist that we're material and immaterial parts of us, whether you're trichotomous, dichotomous, whatever, is that there's this idea that our souls or spirits have sort of decided in some way. And then we become aware of that decision and then we either act or we don't act on that decision. And sometimes I imagine God's voice working this way through the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is in this immaterial communication with my spirit. 
And as my spirit is healthy and in tune with the Holy Spirit, that these affections are in line, I become aware of that, and then I act in righteousness. My spirit is out of whack with the Holy Spirit. I become aware of what I ought to do. Don't sin. Don't hold anger against that person. Don't be bitter against that person. And then I deny it and go do it anyway. <laughs> Why? Because I think this thing is out of, out of balance. So, can some people hear the voice of God? Sure, why not? I mean, biblically, there's warrant for it. Um, but I would say, for, on average, for most Christians, I think it's more subtle in our immaterial selves that our souls, if they're of God, have already made our decisions for us. And then as we become aware of them, we either you know, follow in righteousness or reject and disobey. So I think the voice of God is a little more like that. I usually don't hear audible voices personally. But I don't deny that people can or do. Certainly. And then again, God speaking. I mean, God doesn't have vocal cords, so what does that mean? Does God sort of just vibrate the air through, through his power? I mean, I just think it's more of the sinking with our spirit in some unique way. So just how literal do you want to take that? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I love him as an off, as a as a theologian, but it's also why it's also why I quit reading theology. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why you should read more philosophers and less theologians. But I think I would just hone in on that term symbolically, that he starts out where it looks like it's really tied together in some way. And there's reason that's like the Lutherans would say this, that through the sacraments in some way the means of grace are transmitted uh, to the believer, and certainly the Catholic would. Um, but for, for us, the Anabaptist tradition, um, we were, we'd sort of tend towards a symbolic thing where there's no, um, there's no regenerative work in the baptism, but the baptism is a symbol of Christ's resurrection that we're participating in, in the sense that we've submitted, and now we're baptized into this community of faith. So I would just lean pretty heavily on the word symbolically in there. Otherwise, I would just rip that page out and throw it away. Like the Eucharist, yeah, the Lord's Supper. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, it's a weird sentence, because on the front side, he seems to tie them concretely. On the back end, he's talking about symbols. So it's, it's a little bit bizarre. And because I like him and the trajectory of his life is biblically faithful, I, I would just lean on the symbolic side of that. And there's another thing in there that gave me cause to pause. Um, <laughs> it talked about the, the rise of, of uh, charismatics yeah. and the surveys of that. And then it, and it had in there, it said that they tended to recognize or acknowledge the authority of scripture mm -hmm. more than others and I mean I've been around I've been involved with a lot of charismatics different churches. yeah my experience is not bad at all right yeah I don't know what he could mean oftentimes and particularly unhealthy versions of the charismatic movement they sort of talk about getting their sermons down 
like God speaks to them and they speak to the people, not that we've done the work of exegesis and studying the text. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a, that's a, little bit of a bizarre statement yeah, as well. I'm just wondering if that's self-reporting or something. You know, yeah, it so, could be. But, uh, you know, they tend to, I, I just see a problem, I've seen it over and over, that they, they tend to give more authority to their perception right. of God directing them. Yeah, 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 it's more direct experience than sort of secondary experience through the text, for sure. Does anybody know what our number one heresy is? in the conservative evangelical church. We have our own set of heresies. No one reads these? Christianity Today puts out a like, favorite, they call it the favorite heresies. But Arianism is ours. Yeah, does anybody remember what Arianism is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this Christological heresy. Well, Arminianism. So Arianism, in this sense, comes from a guy named Bishop Arius, and he essentially said that Jesus was created. Jesus was a created being of different stuff than the Father. And so when they polled the average churchgoer in conservative evangelical churches like our own, um, most of them said Jesus was created. So interesting. some way yeah yeah that's the uh, that's ours that we have to fight it's been it's been the top heresy for like the past six years it's interesting yeah I think uh, um, Jay Stroller actually brought that up in a sermon a few weeks back and he said in a survey uh, Christians were asked true or false mm-hmm. was there a time when Jesus did not exist <laughs> yeah Right, yeah. I think he's referencing what's called the Ligonier Lifeway Study, and it's called the State of Evangelicalism, and that's one of their questions, yeah. So that's a pretty prominent one. Yeah, good. Just point being that we see a lot of heresies in other faiths, in other traditions, but we, we got our own, <laughs> too. So we fight both. But yeah, the charismatics in the scriptures, eh, I don't know. I don't see it either. I'm with you. Anybody else? Yeah, Aaron. And again, if you gotta go, go ahead. I got nothing to do tonight. Yeah, I just have to stay forever. Yeah, good to see you. Bye. Good to see you, Stephanie. And I'm also on a one-man mission to see if people will leave without my having prayed. And rarely will they do it. So you're you're breaking the mold here. We don't have to pray before we leave. We can do it. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> good to see you. Good stuff.